don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, geographies of race and sex in jazz age New York with Fiona No. Hello everyone, today my guest is Fiona No, uh, who is the author of Imperial Blues, Geographies of Race and Sex in Jazz Age New York. Uh, hello Fiona. Hi there, thank you for having me Leopold. <laughs> thank you so much. And we are in Chicago where I just arrived and it's totally my fault but we're in a cafe to record this conversation. Hopefully the sound will be alright and I'm, sh I'm sure it will be uh, hearable anyway so please bear with us. Uh, Uh, so Fiona, maybe to start this conversation, uh, would you mind telling us, uh, after this book we're going to talk about today, uh, what is your current research about? I'm uh, currently working on a project that's tentatively titled Structures of Sense, and it's uh, about uh, Southeast Asian American aesthetic production. Because, uh, uh, like in my first book, I'm interested in Uh, sort of cultural formations, um, you know, following war, um, if, if we imagine that war stopped, but um, that's not true either. But um, in that, I'm uh, sort of linking different kinds of artistic works, uh, dance, uh, videos, uh, uh, more formal sort of um, museum pieces and things like that, to... Um, the ways that uh, immigration legislation were written, um, including how the category of um, the refugee was constructed, um, how that served as a basis for the change in um, legislation in the mid-90s for uh, allowing queer people into the country. Um, uh, then other chapters follow uh, the medical-industrial complex, Um, and uh, the welfare system uh, in the U.S. and how uh, different kinds of refugee resettlement programs were sort of bound within the language of uh, uh, welfare and uh, entitlement and those sorts of things. So, uh, as I was saying, today we're going to talk about your book, Imperial Blues, uh, and the uh, subtitles uh, is uh, very explanatory of uh, what the book is about, Geographies of Race and Sex in Jazz Age New York. And uh, indeed, uh, geograph geographical, uh, your style certainly is, uh, uh, your style of writing that I, I really appreciated reading. And uh, I would even say uh, uh, that it is almost a geochronographies to some degree, uh, since we're, we have to imagine the, the various geographies of New York uh, back in the back in the 1920s and, uh, and later uh, so could you could you maybe to, to can you maybe take me and the, the listeners uh, in this uh, in this atmosphere of another time in a in a city that has very strong nodes that allows us to be displaced within the same city to some to some degree mm -hmm. displaced might not be the right word but to, oh, it may be yeah I mean I think that uh part of my interest in New York in this time period is that, you know, you think of the period of high U.S. imperialism as being sort of the end of the 19th century, 
and that by you know say the 1920s um, after World War One that you know this is the beginning of the imagination of the U.S. is not sort of an imperial nation any longer. But I wanted to um, you know where that that starts to be covered over in, in different ways, right? In terms of the national narrative of what the U.S. is. Um, so I wanted to think about the sort of lingering effects um, of sort of continued U.S. imperialism and that sort of history of U.S. imperialism and how um, that continued to construct um, sort of an everyday logic um, within the city and how people experience the space of the city. So for me, thinking about geography in part is thinking about the logic of space in a sort of fractal manner. Um, where you can go from the kind of largest scales of thinking about geography in terms of um, the international or you know world politics or um, those sort of grand motions of imperialism to thinking about you know sex in the back of a cab or on the dance hall floor um, and how the same logics may guide the meanings of those kinds of encounters, uh, right? And that uh, the logic from those very large encounters may be um, transferable to these encounters that we imagine as being much more intimate uh, in a way. Part of what I was doing was, you know, thinking about the way urban histories are written about and how uh, the space of the city is thought to be, you know, bounded by city borders or something like that. Um, as if people didn't come in and out of cities um, and that didn't help create the meanings of the borders or the meanings of what the city uh, might stand for or uh, mean to people um, both within and without the city or um, you know what it means to be a, a kind of imperial center um, like New York which you know in the 20s and even still was called you know the Empire City right um, so I wanted to think about how those, what meanings those boundaries um, create, right? And also think about then all these different ways that those boundaries are actually crossed um, in very everyday ways, um, you know, within neighborhoods, across the city or state borders, across national borders through immigration, um, and, and those sorts of things, uh, to think about what, what it means to even write in urban history when um, space itself is, you know, a, a construct of, of imperial meaning already to begin with. So within these uh, geographies, there, there are some things that you particularly note as, uh, as sites of contact that are the importance of science and uh, the referentiality that one can give to science. And uh, if I even put you... Um, you, you write, uh, and I quote, spaces, objects, and bodies that act as sign of empire are mutable. And uh, so you, you're talking of those ge geographic markers that are repositioned in this uh, geography of, of uh, Jazz New York, Jazz Age New York. Uh, could you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, I'm interested in how this kind of spatial logic, right, and how... Um, space is sort of made to make a very particular kind of sense out of uh, the people and objects that occupy those spaces. Um, but the, that um, sort of sense-making is something that has to be continuous. Also thinking about the sorts of 
you know, these kinds of imperial signs through um, a kind of Derridian construct of um, thinking about how um, signs and context and these things are um, mobile uh, in different ways, right? That they change, they shift, um, sometimes for reasons and sometimes not, I suppose. But uh, that if those things are constantly being created through a sort of number of sources, then how do we think about how objects take on meaning, how bodies take on meaning um, within sort of um, city space then? I don't know if that that quite answers what you're thinking about or not. No, it it, it does, but maybe I... uh... Would you would you mind giving us a few examples of those signs? Because I mean, you you're quoting quite a lot in the in the entire book throughout the book. So, uh, uh, what what are what are materials or signs that operate through space objects and bodies? Yeah, I mean, even if you think about um, say a, a dancer on a nightclub stage or something like that, uh, the sort of uh, clothing that that dancer wears. Uh, is supposed to sort of transport uh, the viewers of um, the production to another space or um, give them a different understanding of the space that they're in because of the space that's being referred to, right? Um, So that somebody may be doing like what might be called a um, Salome dance, which uh, might be a a version of a... um, a ho- what was then called a hoochie coochie, but um, for us would be called um, some version of belly dancing, right? Um, but the, the clothing itself, right, becomes a kind of imperial marker because you could do the same sort of belly dance or hoochie coochie, but dressed in in sort of different kinds of outfits to mark out um, space and meaning of, say, the space of the club, the meaning of the woman dancing, um, the meaning of the audience viewing the woman dancing, right, where, you know, spectators are invited to take on the position of uh, the imperial eye or, or that sort of thing in order to receive pleasure from the show, right, um, so that imperialism and the structures of imperialism are also the ways that uh, pleasure uh, in the city, um, sexuality in the city, race in the city are built um, through those kinds of markers so that, you know, a material object like uh, uh, silk pajamas, which was often a referent for China, um, but it pops up in a lot of literature, um, but also in people's houses and house parties or uh, costume balls and those sorts of things, right? Um, you know, what is that supposed to mean when you have those kinds of materials or, you know, ivory um, cigarette holders or, or those sorts of things that um, are meant to um, reference these sort of spaces outside of the city, but are, of course, already in the city, you know, with that meaning, right? So that also sort of begs the question of, you know, imperial meaning, not necessarily just happening out in the empire, right, but um, within the imperial center as well, and being constructed there as well. Right. And I suppose you're bringing a complexity as well to, uh, to the imperial scheme, because um, obviously you're describing, for example, uh, a white woman who would, who would uh, wear signs of uh, orientalism or... Uh, or who would paint their their face in black and then to refer to Africa? But you're also describing uh, uh, 
I mean, for example, the, the book has a very powerful photo of, a, of an African American Salome, uh, that yeah. how uh, yeah. all those signs um, uh, and bodies are actually even more complex and the strict, uh, the strict imperial scheme of, of uh, white bodies. Appropriating, uh, uh, or not even appropriating, uh, developing an imperial narrative of, of orientalization. Yeah, and that, that that narrative is something that is in itself quite complex, right? Because sometimes people take on, um, you know, the sort of accoutrement of uh, the Orient in order to um, identify with you know, these sort of orientalized bodies in order to empower themselves um, to, to sort of push back against um, the sort of idea of the imperial center and that kind of notion of power, right? If you connect that kind of imperialism, say, with policing, right? Then you have all of these kinds of underground clubs and that sort of thing. You can also see how people identifying with that kind of underworld might also identify with those imperial spaces in a different way rather than as imperial masters per se um, or sometimes it's a mix uh, some of the artists like um, there's a French Canadian woman whose name I will soon remember uh, Eva Gautier um, who um, because of her uh, which I don't think I don't think this actually made it into the book either, unfortunately. But um, she, at a young age, was swept away to um, Dutch Indonesia uh, to marry a Dutch plantation owner um, after having trained, have, having had operatic training in um, Italy, um, and then uh, you know moved to this Dutch imperial space, then moved up to New York, but. You know, part of her repertoire was, uh, you know, songs of Java um, and performing that. But she's also um, the first performer to bring songs written by African Americans to Radio City Music Hall as well. Um, so, um, in a sense, I mean, she was both performing and identifying herself with these different kinds of cultures and being a, a kind of... Um, uh, you know, someone who could travel into these cultures, but was also someone who's collecting, you know, so that there's both that sort of sense of um, distance and um, uh, intimacy uh, that happens simultaneously, I think. And, you know, the ways that the signs of, say, Orientalism are used um, could be various, right? If we're, if we're going to be serious about loosening the meanings of race or sexuality or those sorts of things, then we also have to take seriously the idea that those kinds of racial and national and sexual markers can actually mean different things, maybe in the same instance, right? So what does it mean for um, African Americans or uh, white folks to appropriate those signs of Orientalism and utilize them um, in different ways, is it actually going to mean the same thing? And I think now we, the kind of racial critiques that we're used to are the sort of idea that if you um, even speak race, then that's a kind of racism that's bad. 
um, because it's, I don't know, demeaning or, um, uh, you know, isn't polite or who knows what. But, um, of course, race is, is spoken and performed all the time. Um, so are there more things for race to mean than good or bad, I suppose, right? And then how do you start, sort of start to track what those meanings can, can actually be then, right? Can we have more complex readings of, of racial meaning beyond that's real or that's not real or, you know, if, if we're already thinking about these things as constructed in different ways? I guess that's what you mean in, uh, when you're referring to Foucault, to Michel Foucault and as the production of imperialism and not to simple repression of it. Yeah, right? What is made out of these kinds of the circulations of imperial discourse? then, right? And can't it be more than one thing, right? I mean, because imperialism is going to mean different things to different people, right? And sort of off-topic, I, I also wrote this little piece on punk in Los Angeles in the 70s, and, um, you know, the, the sort of idea of um, the wars in Southeast Asia at that time was something that really struck like the punk imagination, but, you know, they identified with, like, the Viet Cong a lot of the time because they were against um, policing in the U.S. and the sort of shift in the U.S. police forces to um, that, that kind of military-style policing, right? Um, or the, you know, the Vietnamization of the LAPD at that time. So, you know, um, those kinds of... Um, uses of Orientalism kind of produce lots and lots of different kinds of things, um, you know, even as they're s still based in that kind of imperial logic, right, um, that, that is about power at its core. Well, the, the fact that you're talking about uh, punk in Los Angeles in the 1980s and we are mostly talking about uh, jazz in New York in the 1920s and we're in Chicago in the 2010s uh, hearing uh, music from early 1990s. <laughs> it's like there's this, uh, <laughs> there is this uh, spatial and musical uh, sonic uh, uh, atmosphere that we're describing. But that that makes that makes me want to ask you if, uh, and that's a, that's a question coming from someone who's highly ignorant in jazz, whether jazz as a music itself. Uh, let's say, considered separately from its uh, political context and cultural context, whether the music itself has carries the signs of rebellion that you're describing uh, in, throughout the book. Well, I think, you know, jazz, like any sort of form of aesthetic production, you know, have, carries its multiple meanings in a way, right? And before we started the interview, we were talking about that section in um, my book where I'm talking about the sort of etymology of the word um, jazz and how um, it was very much related to sex and sexuality so that um, even in um, some newspaper reports or the vice reports, you know, um, when uh, people were, say, gyrating on a dance floor and, and uh, you know, grinding, Um, that that might be called jazzing somebody up or, or um, that sort of thing, so that it was really synonymous with um, sex and sexuality, and not just any sexuality, but even a, a sort of public, um, illicit kind of sexuality, right? Um, 
But I think that there's also a tendency in jazz studies to imagine jazz as being sort of purely um, resistant as a, as a discourse. But of course, jazz in many parts of time across the 20th and 21st centuries actually as a pop music, right? Um, I mean, it's what everyone is, is listening to. And um, uh, I think that there's a connection of jazz and blackness um, that those are that's sort of encoded within the style of jazz. But you know, even in the 20s, some of the biggest sorts of jazz orchestras are like Paul Whiteman's, who is in fact a white man um, orchestra, and he has giant um, you know pop hits um, with uh, his his uh, take on different jazz songs, right? And a lot of the jazz standards that were written that sort of come from the 20s but are still performed in various ways you know or were written by the Gershwins and um, Irving Berlin right um, they actually come out of those Tin Pan Alley um, songs that were largely written by white and um, Jewish American um, composers right um, so uh, you know a lot of songs that people improvise over are still you know from that that time period um, and given, depending on the context, uh, I don't know that you could almost, you wouldn't almost say that jazz is something that is purely resistant, you know. Um, in fact, even in this time period, um, Theodore Adorno writes a, a little piece about um, jazz in the U.S., which he very much condemns um, jazz uh, as being a sort of mode of capitalism. Right, and is part of that kind of culture industry, right? Um, and the commercialization of music, and he much, you know, prefers um, these kinds of modernist modes of um, classical music. But would that be a cliche to say that uh, jazz dramatizes its own breakage of the rules? That it, uh, isn't it? Isn't it what jazz? Uh, or is about to, to establish a certain set of rules and then meticulously break them one by one? Um, I think in the 20s, in the 20s you don't have as much um, kind of improvisation and that, that kind of jazz playing as you do later in the, even the, the mid to late 30s and, in, and I mean the 40s is a whole different sort of logic of musical scales um, that happens with improvisation which is very much more about trying to use dissonance in a, a particular way in the 20s you know is what people might call like sweet jazz or traditional jazz um, it's it much more closely follows the structures of pop music um, so that the chord progressions and that sort of thing are um, I think very sort of easy, physically easy to um, interact with, right? Um, you know, in, particularly in the 40s with the, the rise of bebop, that really changes in terms of um, jazz and what um, some of the, the sort of leaders of, of um, jazz movements want to actually accomplish with music when they're actually trying, very purposely trying to make it into an art music rather than... Um, a popular music sort of following the, the swing era, right? Um, but in the 20s, you know, this was music that you'd hear in any dance hall. It would be like going out to a club, 
you know, now and hearing music and you don't necessarily think that, you know, well, this has a good beat and I can dance to it. But, uh, you know, it's not necessarily transgressive in that way, even though the clubs themselves might be transgressive spaces in different ways, right, in terms of location or um, time or, or space or who or age or, you know, whoever's going to go into those clubs and, and meet, right? But the music then sort of relies on the context for meaning in and of itself. And, I mean, you know, jazz was thought to be something that was dangerous. So in 1926, the New York Board of Aldermen passed a, a zoning law called, you know, it was colloquially called the cabaret laws, which meant that you had to have um, a cabaret license in order to perform. And um, the instruments... And, uh, that were named were very specifically instruments that would be found in jazz combinations. And part of the law, too, was that uh, you know, not more than, I think, three people could be dancing in the establishment. But those laws were on the books for decades and decades. In fact, um, that's part of you know, the biggest interruptions for um, the careers of Billie Holiday and Thelonious Monk were that they lost their cabaret licenses and couldn't perform in New York clubs, which is where, you know, you grow your craft. Um, but even as, you know, as recently as 1998, when um, they were trying to um, retool Times Square and move all the strip clubs and um, peep show um, houses out of Times Square, they actually used that 1926 cabaret law in order to shut those places down because people were dancing without these cabaret licenses and they went in and um, closed them down. And and people understood that that was happening. There was actually this group called the uh, Dance Action Network, which... uh, went into the newly opened uh, Disney store on Times Square and um, had a um, went in and danced in it and demanded that the, the police close down the Disney store for uh, having uh, dancing without a cabaret license, which turned out to not work, but um, was very funny nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the rehabilitation or whatever of, of Times Square right, was actually built on the back of that 1926 uh, zoning law, too. It's interesting to pair up Robert Giuliani with me, Kate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose I was was more thinking of the Kansas City scenes and the the New York scene in terms of jazz with uh, the the jazz battles and Lester Young terrorizing everyone with his saxophone and young Charlie Parker looking at that and everything. But I guess Kansas City was a whole other uh, place for jazz and art and kind of work. Yeah, I mean, I think that jazz cultures in different places just um, have had sort of different meanings to the city where, you know, somewhere like New Orleans, you know, really embraced its idea of the sort of, you know, birthplace of jazz or what have you. Um, And has always, you know, had that sort of reputation. Although, I mean, there's a lot of policing that happens down on Beale Street and and those sorts of places that that sort of came along as... uh, um, sort of jazz locales in the city too yeah um, so co- continuing uh, within the book is that there's a there's a moment that I uh, found uh, extremely inspiring for uh, what it suggested and I'm going to quote you again here uh, 
you wrote, and I quote, movement constitutes the source of both intense power and acute anxiety for the imperial management of race and sex in the imperial city. End of quote. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of this uh, this idea of movement. Uh, that's something I've been, I've been for quite a while very interested in, and I'm, I'm thinking of it as much at the scale of the city itself, and as we were saying, like entering, exiting the city, or even at the neighborhood, the neighborhood itself, and how, uh, and for example, the descriptions you you were you're doing of people visiting Harlem. Uh, adventuring themselves in all and So I'm, I'm thinking as much as yeah, this, this scale of the cities and the scale of the, the most immediate scale around the body itself and, and, and the way you were describing it a little bit earlier uh, of how people are dancing for example and uh, maybe to to carry on in that in that topic, you you're describing at some point, uh, uh, the, I think the memoir of an of an author who's, who's describing that he's in a he's in a jazz club at some point dancing, and all in a sudden the the orchestra starts playing the balls, oh, yes. and and half of the half of the people in the in the club are leaving, and it's basically the balls means yeah, the police arrived. Yes. Uh, a police so, raid. So there, there is always this uh, uh, also scales of movement of bodies that that uh, kind of enter into into this uh, uh, management of race and sex. Uh, uh, can you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, I think in part um, I'm also thinking of um, this of Karen Kaplan's critique of uh, movement. Um, in, for her postmodern discourse uh, but the, this happens too in a lot of the literature on the 1920s is the idea that if you can move across borders then this means that you're going to be free right um, because movement obviously is, is about freedom of the body to, to be and inhabit different kinds of spaces uh, but that you know that never tells the story of what happens to those bodies when they arrive somewhere else I suppose too Right. So on the one hand, we have this sort of idea of um, the, this kind of, you know, liberation of the body and the, the body and movement and dancing, say. Um, but the, those spaces, because, because it, it, you know, that, that sort of trope um, aligns with what people believe already, um, also brings sort of more intense uh, policing as well. Right, so that when you have bodies moving into these places that you know they're um, not really supposed to be in somehow, um, that that means that that's a, an invitation for the police to come as well and um, to surveil those bodies. Or um, in my book, a lot of the time it's vice investigators who are um, on the loose in these uh, clubs. Um, you know, monitoring um, particularly women's bodies and um, how they move within even club space, um, because that's that's already dangerous enough to have these unattended women's bodies in public space, right? So that um, you know, uh, those those kinds of moments of, of movement are are also sort of limited by the kind of policing that um, that movement inspires I suppose as well so that 
those kinds of clubs that were called black and tan clubs uh, in Harlem where uh, black folks and white folks uh, and more, it turns out, might be, inhabit the same kinds of club spaces, um, the, those kinds of racial borders and sexual borders that were being crossed then also bring with it um, more policing. And I guess it doesn't hurt either that a lot of those clubs were owned and operated by mobs and, and things like that as well. Yeah. Well, if we if we stay in uh, Harlem and uh, what you what you describe in your in your book uh, as a black maker, um, you you also insisting on uh, the existence of mechanisms of uh, what you call inter internal colonialism with with some. Um, some reservation about, about this term, but uh, could, could you describe it for us uh, at the scale of a city? How, how does colonialism in a very specific form operate? And, and I mean, I think what we're describing here in the 1920s in New York uh, can be, to some degree, uh, 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 be applied as well to uh, processes of gentrification, for example, today. So sure. I, think, I think it's important to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think the the terms uh, internal colonialism or um, sometimes domestic colonialism uh, became popular, particularly in the 1960s in the U.S. as a way to talk about uh, those neighborhoods uh, within urban space that were populated by people of color, um, but that there were also stark sorts of um, financial differences between um, those sectors of the city and um, sectors of the cities that were inhabited by white folks. Uh, but what I found interesting is in part that a lot of that talk about internal and domestic colonialism that happened in the 60s really based itself in um, ideas of um, finance, I suppose, um, and labor, uh, but that in the 1920s you actually have um, discourses of colonialism to help separate out those parts of the city that are inhabited primarily by people of color um, so that the, those discourses are very much tied to, um, that, are, that are still in, uh, important in terms of um, labor and capital but um, are also marked through very particularly imperial space um, as well. So you mentioned it as part of the question, the sort of idea of Harlem as the black mecca, um, but the, um, those relationships between um, Harlem and um, West Asia and Northern Africa um, were um, very strong at the time, right? Um, in terms of thinking of uh, Uh, there, well, there's a Porter Granger song that he recorded that's called uh, In Harlem's Araby, um, which is uh, the sort of um, transposition of um, uh, Arab, Arab space into Harlem and vice versa. Um, and uh, another popular term at the time would be to call African-American men uh, in particular uh, sheiks, um, although sometimes uh, like black lesbians were also called sheiks. Um, as well uh, but, but there is a, a kind of standing discourse that compared Harlem to these um, other sites of, of imperial contact as well um, and sexual contact as well since you know, northern Africa in particular has long been a sort of um, space for uh, 
queer Europeans to to go to um, find um, sexual release, right? As the, the literature says uh, about Morocco or Algeria and these sorts of spaces. So, um, but that Harlem um, sometimes served that same purpose with um, white folks coming up to Harlem. Uh, to um, experience this kind of sexual otherness, right, and openness um, that you would find um, in a kind of imperial space, but that uh, you have this kind of domestic space then that can be remapped as as being sort of outside of, of um, the bounds of the city, even as it's within the within the city, I suppose. I'm not sure if that gets to what you're thinking about or not. No, I think it does, and um, and actually. It- even offers me uh, a transition for maybe the, the last thing I'd like to ask you about uh, today, which is uh, because you, you have an entire chapter in the book about uh, the formation of, uh, of uh, queer bodies, and in particular black queer bodies. Uh, and in order to do so, you, you're, using, uh, you're using the aesthetic developed by uh, Richard Bruce Nugent that even is in the cover of the, of the book. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful cover. Uh, could, could you maybe describe? Uh, I mean, we will. I will add to the page there, there his his drawings so that people will know exactly what we're talking about. But can you can you describe this relation between uh, those drawings and their, the formation of of, uh, queer, of an aesthetic of queer queer black bodies? Yeah, I've, uh, I was interested in there. Well, there are four drawings in particular. Um, not not this cover illustration. Um, but uh, the series that's called um, Drawings for Mulattoes, which are some of the most um, reproduced drawings of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, you know, they serve as people's cover art, uh, like uh, uh, on inner, the book Inner Zones, you have uh, his pieces are interspersed throughout the book as, as just, uh, you know, um, artwork for, to, to um, make the book look better, things like that. Uh, but uh, that those have been read in very particular ways that are, you know, based in the sort of um, fixedness of both, of you know, space, time, race, sexuality. So part of how I wanted to think about that was to understand how Nugent himself who I think was also a a brilliant theorist as well um, um, as an artist who wanted to think about how those you know things that we imagine as borders between races or borders between space are actually co-located so much of the time so um, the idea of ancient Greece and um, modern Harlem right, um, could actually be bound together and um, coexist uh, in a different way. Um, maybe it's aesthetically, maybe it's actually through um, the collapse of time uh, or the, the collapse of space. Um, but I think for Nugent, this was his idea of understanding the the kind of queering of those categories, um, but also the way that um, you know gender and sex fluidity might work um, in the city, um, so that you know what's considered masculine and feminine might in fact um, be 
happening on the same body or uh, be uh, able, you know the, the 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 same body might be able to shift from a masculine register to a feminine register and back again you know um, in a matter of, of moments say um, so I wanted to read some of the images uh, through the sort of landscape of uh, Nugent's imagination I suppose and um, think about uh, what if we imagine those bodies as already being queer right um, what would a reading of, of those images actually uh, look like then yeah and I suppose one way is doing that as well and you, you'll tell me if it's it's a far-fetched theory, theory or what but he's using only black and white to yeah to express new ends so that that's quite a bold move but I think I think uh, I've been looking at them uh, uh, and what's very very interesting is that most of the time is that he's using black and white but within the within the original white or original black or we, we don't know which one is the original it doesn't matter but every time every time he creates a new black zone let's say it, it's used as a background for the white to appear and then the white itself will use as a background for the black to appear so there's a sort of succession like that uh, of, uh, of uh, just black and white zones that eventually manage to to create this this, this uh, gray in terms of value uh, not in terms of uh, and to create this nuance you were describing right now. I don't know if it makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying reminds me of the, you know, that kind of use of negative space, right? Um, You know, for me, makes sense in terms of uh, the way that uh, imperialism itself works as a kind of um, background to um, help define um, uh, domestic space as well. Um, And that that kind of um, contrast, uh, you know, to me really speaks to um, different ways that you can view the sort of idea of the margin as uh, shaping shaping centers in, in different ways as well, and, and vice versa, and switching those around, right, as he does over the course of the, the drawings too, right? Um, but I think that... Um, your reading is, is also an interesting one, right? To say, okay, we have these um, black and white images, but then doesn't that um, reference um, the kind of gray in between the, the black and white, right? Um, which I think is, is true too, right? Because he's definitely calling into question the, the sorts of constructions of those borders as well, yeah. But as a note too, this cover image actually wasn't black and white initially. Oh, yeah, I mean, I think the drawings for mulattoes were inside it, but um, you can't you can't see this anymore, even on the original. But on the original of this, there was actually um, colored marker outlines around some of the the black parts oh. at the edges. Yeah, but that those those markers, the uh, markings have um, faded. So, yeah. Well, Fiona, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I apologize again for the, the noise around, but at the same time, we were talking about sonic and spatial atmosphere, so I think it's not completely a nonsense to have noise around. Uh, and uh, I obviously recommend to anyone to read it, to read Imperial Blues and, and to explore the various geographies you're describing in, in New York. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you, Leopold, for having me.